This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fifth and Mission. Most of us avoid approaching people who are talking to themselves, arguing with someone who isn't there, or otherwise seem out of touch with reality. Years ago, the former chief of service for San Francisco General Hospital's psychiatric department took the opposite approach. I was rushing to my car one night in San Francisco, and it was cold and rainy, and I saw this little woman huddled up against the rain in rags. This is Dr. Robert Oaken. In addition to his time at SF General, he's long been a mental health policy advisor, and he taught at UCSF Medical School for 19 years. He knows what happens in psychiatric care and at the hospital. What he didn't really know and wanted to find out is what happens on the streets. I just couldn't get her out of my mind for weeks. I couldn't imagine how she could bear it night after night after night. So I decided I would spend a little time on the street approaching people who were homeless and mentally ill and asking if I could talk to them. That's what he did. He took portraits of the people he met and took notes of their conversations. Oaken went on to publish these in a book called Silent Voices. It came out in 2014, and a second edition was released earlier this year. The photos and stories are striking. I found them at the same time uplifting and very difficult to read. All too often, they show how the structures designed to stabilize people end up failing them, and how devastating an experience that can be. Beyond the stories, though, the book is also a vehicle for Oaken to trace the roots of the crisis. He gives his perspective on how high-level policy approaches have produced a fractured system. And he has ideas about what could be done differently. San Francisco has just launched one new approach to getting certain mentally ill people help who haven't yet accepted treatment. The system is called CARE Court, which is an acronym, Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment. It's arriving in San Francisco at a time when the city and the state are grappling with a shortage of mental health resources and when treatment is a controversial topic. We'll discuss CARE Court later in the show, but first, I talked with Dr. Robert Oaken about his book and his observations. It's been about 16 years since he directed the psychiatric department at the hospital. I wanted to know what has changed about homelessness and mental health over the decades he's been involved. Homelessness has been largely either created by governments at all levels or certainly allowed to continue. It started really with Reagan and dumping 36,000 mentally ill people out of the mental hospitals and then doing very little to take care of them. The state just washed its hands of these people and left it to the counties to struggle with, even though it was the state that had the most taxing power and the most funding that could have really prevented this crisis in the first place. And then the city also was a major culprit in it. For example, the Department of Public Health closed 50% 
of the acute psychiatric beds in its own general hospital. Well, where were those people going to go? They ended up on the street. Secondly, the city sat on its hands watching the board and care homes disappear from the city. 50% of them had to close their doors because the city refused to give them the kind of resources that they needed to stay open. Thirdly, instead of creating a modern, responsive, organized mental health system, it continued the status quo. And the status quo, I have to say, is really miserable. You know, it's the services are delivered in a very siloed, disorganized way. Social workers who needed to be able to spend time with people were so overwhelmed by their caseloads that they just couldn't do it. And the result was that they burned out and they said, I'm out of here. And when they left, their clients were left high and dry and their view about the city's lack of real concern about them just got confirmed. That drop in the number of acute psychiatric beds Dr. Oaken just referred to happened between about 2008 and 2010. The number kept falling for a few years, according to healthcare workers. San Francisco has since added some mental health facilities and beds, but as of 2020, General Hospital's acute psychiatric bed capacity was still about half of what it was in the early aughts. Meanwhile, San Francisco residents often encounter people who seem mentally unwell or disturbed on the streets. I asked Oaken how he believes we as individuals should be interacting with them. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge them because these are people who felt invisible as children and continue to feel invisible on the street because we just don't look at them. We want to kind of pretend that they're not there. And after I began hearing their stories, I wanted to know what they thought about as they pushed their carts around the city. I wanted to know whether they had a vision for their lives. I guess I wanted to, I wanted to know what their joys were and what their sorrows were and, you know, how they imagined the rest of their lives. What about the rest of us? For any of us who see somebody who is just unpredictable, are you saying that we should all approach each other? I mean, it, it can be it can be intimidating. It can be scary. It's going to be political action that the average person can really participate in, because without that, nothing is going to happen. Our political leaders are going to do a lot of hand wringing, but nothing is going to happen. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because I came to believe that humanizing these people was the foundation for political action. Your book is titled Silent Voices. Is it a matter of people being silent or more a matter of our willingness to listen? The latter. You know, they're screaming, but we can't hear them because we choose not to. 
You write about the importance of social inclusion for mentally ill people and that it can't wait until they get treatment. Can you tell me about that? Yes. You know, a, a broken leg can heal by itself. It doesn't need people around it to heal. The body heals it. But a broken mind needs much more than that. It needs other people to help, to acknowledge, to care. And unless we include these people in the social sphere, we won't really be able to help them. They'll continue to feel marginalized. They'll continue to feel hated and feared and dehumanized. So we've got to include them in the social sphere. So let's talk about your experience out getting these portraits. And you go into this in quite some detail, actually, in your book and how you went about securing that consent to make sure that you weren't exploiting people, that this wasn't an exercise in voyeurism. Can you tell me how you did that? Well, first, I have to say, before I started approaching people, I was very anxious. I was kind of concerned that they would feel insulted by my approaching them as though just my interest in them in itself was evidence that their lives were screwed up and that I wanted to somehow voyeuristically spy into lives that fate had treated so shabbily. And then I expected that people would have these hard, crusty shells and would be very hard to contact. But instead, I found the opposite. I found that their grief was so close to the surface and that they were really willing to talk to me about the most intimate and sometimes shameful aspects of their lives in such a generous way. Did you ever encounter anyone years later after this book came out? And, and has anyone ever reacted to the way they appeared in the book? No, I, I tried to contact people. And one guy I had breakfast with every month for a couple of years. And we played baseball together. Uh, he was a fabulous pitcher, by the way. And, you know, he talked to me at great length and with real openness about the pain of his life. I mean, for example, he had no teeth. And one of the things he told me was that he felt just deeply ashamed about that. He said to me, you know, if you have a big nose, nobody's going to blame you. But if you have no teeth, everybody's going to look at you and think you're a real screw up. So that was one thing he told me. The second thing was that he longed for a romantic relationship, mm -hmm. but he said, it's just not in the cards. As soon as a woman kissed me, she would be disgusted with my gums. There was another woman, Barbara, who I went back to visit in her SRO because when I visited her, a little earlier, she was wearing three coats. Why? 
because the radiators didn't work. And she had complained five times to the management, but they just blew her off. Fortunately, I was able with a little threats and a little shaming to get them to fix the radiator. But in any event, I went back a few months later only to find that she had died of cancer. I have to say I cried a lot reading this book, too. Actually, one of the things that struck me the most and just honestly broke me in reading this was the incredible generosity that a lot of the people that you encountered had and showed you, you know, not just with their stories, but, you know, there's a guy who, he's the shoe shiner, and he shines (laughs) shoes, and you tried to pay him more than he was asking for a shoe shine, and he wouldn't let you. Yeah, yeah, these people were incredibly generous, and I think when, when people pass them on the street, they don't get to see any of that. I have to admit somewhat with somewhat embarrassment that before I undertook this, and even though I had seen many, many of them in the hospital, I carried some of the same views and the same attitudes as the general public. I wasn't above that. I wasn't outside of that. And it was only through getting to know these people as people that I could see how it was that they became homeless you know, that it wasn't some accident. They had been neglected and abused as children, many of them, although some of them had parents who loved them and just broke their backs to try to help them and get treatment for them, despite the fact that they weren't getting much support from the city. For those who have had bad experiences with the social service and healthcare system, mistrust is a major hurdle. After a quick break, we'll talk about some of the proposals on the table to provide better and more abundant services and get people into treatment. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. My guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, a psychiatrist who has a long career in mental health care and advocacy behind him, says services have long been under-resourced in this field. For years, psychiatric care capacity was shrinking. Now the state is working to expand it. One new method just launched this week. San Francisco began holding hearings in care court. This is a civil court process aiming to help people with untreated schizophrenia and related disorders to get care. Disability justice and civil liberties advocates say while it isn't compulsory, it can put people on a path toward forced treatment. Other critics say there's no way the city can actually provide all the services the court might mandate. I talked about this in detail with Chronicle reporter Aldo Toledo last week. Oaken is hopeful about this and other state initiatives, but knows there's lots of work to be done. I asked him what he would do to fix the mental health and psychiatric care system if it were up to him. (sighs) 
I would say that Governor Newsom is the first governor who really seems to take this seriously. He really truly seems committed to solving this problem and to giving the cities the revenues that they need to create housing and so on and so forth. The state has got to provide more funds and crucially, much more accountability for the way those funds are used by the counties. I mean, the counties in a certain way have just been able to do what they've wanted to do. And some counties have done it well, some counties have done it poorly, but it's been kind of a free-for-all. And the state has got to exert much more authority than it ever has. The Department of Mental Health in this state is very weak and I would say very negligent. Some counties are using the little monies that they get from the state in ways that don't really focus on the most disturbed disabled population. There are other populations that number one, are much easier to take care of, and number two, have a much greater voice in the public arena. So the counties tend to be more responsive to that subgroup of people. I would say the 30% of the unhoused population that's seriously mentally ill, they don't really have a voice. And the result is that they're often left behind, both because they're more difficult to take care of, but secondly, because they don't have the political voice in the public arena that they need to get the city's attention. And in fact, I would say that Newsom's care court proposal, which I support if it's implemented in the proper way, is an attempt to deal with that sliver of the population because unlike conservatorships, in which the conservator has no power to force the city to provide the very services that people need, the care court forces the counties to provide the services that are needed, and it backs up that force with a fine of $1,000 a day against the county if it refuses to do that. Do I understand correctly, care courts are compelling people into outpatient treatment? Yes. They're compelling people into outpatient treatment and housing, which they'd never get without the care courts. Mm -hmm. And they're compelling them in a way that hopefully prevents them from reaching the point of grave disability where they're placed in locked facilities for months and often years and... They're preventing them from getting into trouble with the criminal justice system. So the goal is to prevent them from needing a much more coercive, restrictive kind of care. When you say outpatient treatment, one of the first things that comes to mind to me is medication. And as somebody who has clinical experience, you may be able to disabuse me of that notion. But you do point out and acknowledge that for some people, medication has intolerable side effects. You talked to one person who was so itchy that they simply couldn't take them anymore. Yes. So there might be a reason why people are rejecting outpatient services is all I'm saying. Well, yes, but it's crucial not to confuse outpatient services with this 
critical sliver of outpatient services, and I'm in no way devaluing it or minimizing it, but the formation of a human relationship with a case manager can often encourage people to take medications that they previously rejected, especially when the case manager advocates with a psychiatrist to try different medications. So medication is critical, but there are good reasons that many people object to them. But some of those reasons have to do with the fact that the service system is so overloaded that it doesn't approach people in the right way in order to encourage them to take their medications. Let's talk more about conservatorship because you seem to have quite a negative reaction to the expansion of conservatorship, which local and state politicians are advancing as as a solution to people who are mentally ill on the street and unable to care for themselves. At the same time, in your book, you also you know, advocate for the expansion of the understanding or interpretation of the term gravely disabled, which comes up in care court. And I think a similar terminology also comes up in conservatorship cases. How do you square that? Well, first of all, judges are quite loath to define someone as gravely disabled, even though in any kind of common sense look at these people, they're clearly unable to provide for their clothing and shelter and food. Is that what we've come to, that we consider grave disability to be such that if people can manage in this really horrific way, they're considered to be not gravely disabled. The conservators are often very frustrated by the fact that they can't get the counties to provide the services that people need. And often what happens is they have to wait until people deteriorate to the point where, what do they need? A locked facility. And until the conservators are given more authority, not authority over the client, authority over the county, then expanding the reach of the conservator, I think, is only going to have a limited effect. Conservatorship is not a magic bullet. One of the things you point out in the book is that the cost of dealing with the fallout of homelessness is much higher than the cost would be to provide people dignified, comprehensive, and adequate services and care. And yet, we always hear about how these programs cannot be funded or they're not realistic because they would cost too much. Why are we always stuck in that mentality? Yeah. You know, as much as I hate it, I do understand the dilemma. Because the cost of homelessness is buried in the budgets of the emergency department, the hospital department, the fire department, the DPW, the courts, the police. It's, it's all distributed and it's very difficult for the average person to see. So it is true that it costs twice as much to leave someone homeless, but it's also very hard to pull money out of each of these departments 
and segregate it and solve the problem. So that's why it requires, at least in a front-ending kind of way, the state to you know, to provide the funding that is necessary and for the city to tighten up its management so that it can utilize more efficiently the units that it has. I would like to try to close on a more hopeful note, if that is possible. Is there hope for us? Oh, I believe absolutely that there's hope. I mean, I wouldn't still be doing this if I didn't think there was hope. I think, number one, there's hope that people can change their view of mentally ill homeless people. Secondly, we're lucky that we live in a democracy as fragile as it is right now. When people stand up and demand that their political leaders stop wringing their hands and stop nibbling around the edges of this problem, I believe that our political leaders will listen. I believe that the population is already starting to demand that the government do something different. I don't think the mayor would be as involved in this subject if she wasn't hearing from people that they were sick and tired of a lot of political noise, but no action. I'm sure that's true. Dr. Oaken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Robert Oaken is the author of Silent Voices, a book of portraits and stories told to him by people living on the street. After we finished our conversation, he reached back out to bring up what he sees as another source of hope. Money might be coming to bolster services. The state is applying for federal dollars to expand mental health services and has already budgeted more than $6 billion for that initiative. In June, California awarded nearly $1.5 billion in grants to counties to provide housing and care for aging adults and people with substance use disorders and increase capacity at treatment facilities. And there's a ballot measure slated for the 2024 primary election, asking voters to approve a $4.6 billion bond to fund residential facilities, clinics, and housing for people who are struggling with homelessness and severe mental illness. You can read more about Care Court and its launch in San Francisco at sfchronicle.com or at the county superior court website, sf.courts.ca.gov. Thanks to Sarah Feldberg and Cecilia Lay for editing this episode, Gary Baca for mixing the audio, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>